Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast is presented by SoundStop. Check out these amazing quality headphones at soundstop.co. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Zavara. Nicholas, my friend. Oh, baby. I'll tell you what, this, the last couple of weeks, we're going we're gonna to take a deep breath <laughs> and get into the topic. But how are you doing, my friend? Good. I'm good, man. Like, life, life's good. Yeah, and I agree with you. Just recent weeks, you know, what we got coming up today, like, just a lot of good stuff, man. I'm excited. Yeah. How are you? We, we've got some, I'm doing good, man. Every, everybody's good. We do have got some really cool topics coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, I'll give some people a sneak teaser. We've got uh, a, another uh, former federal prosecutor coming out. We're going to digest some of the legal news going around. Uh, we have a meteorologist coming on. We're going to talk about climate change potentially. Get your, get your weather on. That's right. That's right. So we, we've got a bunch of different cool topics that are that are coming up. And our topic for today is is awesome because the guest for today is awesome. And that is the author, Chad Sanders, of the book uh, Black Magic, What Black Leaders Learn from Trauma and Triumph. Uh, Chad and I, you know, interest of full disclosure, have known each other for a few years and used to play in a basketball game. And that's how we kind of met and our friendship evolved. And, you know, I, I didn't know this at the time, uh, but. He was going through so much with really banking on himself. Chad has a unique story where he worked in, in tech for years at Google and some other companies. And then something happened to him along the way where he just wanted to decide to uh, dive all in on uh, banking on himself and his career, his creativity, you know, uh, per chance meeting that he has that he talks about in the book with Spike Lee led to pitching a TV show that got eventually picked up by BET. 
Um, and it's led him down this whirlwind now where he's crossing over into Hollywood and mainstream. You may have seen him on Brene Brown's podcast. He was on uh, Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard. He's been on Angie Martinez's show here in New York City. Um, he's been on Tamara Hall's program. So he's done the whirlwind of, of interviews and promoting this fantastic book, like I mentioned, Black Magic, What Black Leaders Learn from Trauma and Triumph. Um, and the book is, is a fascinating read. He tells us a lot about uh, what he wants to impart for people that, that are purchasing the book, or maybe even going through something similar where they feel like at their current job, you know, they may be the only Black person there, which some people in the book tell stories of, and, and how those people use that to their advantage you know, as opposed to turning into just a disadvantage as, as an isolated moment. Um, Nick, what do you take away um, from reading Chad's book and, and all of Chad's work that he's been doing? Well, I mean, I mean, there's two things there. First, with the book, I mean, he just talks about just the reality of being a Black person in the workforce. I mean, fundamentally, how that is a different experience than being, than being a white person or even potentially other people of color. Um, you know, Chad speaks to how that, you know, that difference can be leveraged as, as different strengths that you can be able to bring, but, um, you know, being able to you know, emerge from, from, emerge from trauma that way. But then the other side of it is Chad's just an accomplished dude, you know, and we've had a lot of luminaries on this show and, you know, we're very proud of the fact that we, we seek out, you know, really the cream of the crop, you know, people who are experts in their respective fields, um, people who just have a lot of just amazing things to say and amazing stories to share. And Chad emerges as, as one of those people who really stands at the top of that list. You know, we think about, you know, the book that, you know, had come out, um, just his life experience, you know, what he's doing now professionally. Mike, you and I watched a recent talk of his, A Given Berlin, just talking about, you know, living out there um, as, as an artist. And he's lived an extraordinary life and he packages it really well in the book, but then also in just the way he tells the story today to us. Yeah, you know, and Chad is an, I don't, I don't want to gloss over some of this, but he's written op-ed pieces for the New York Times and for Slam Magazine. Um, he is developing a series with Morgan Freeman for Peacock. He's written on the hit series Grownish. He's currently working with Issa Rae on, on a new upcoming project for HBO Max. He's uh, launching a podcast uh, with a very popular uh, distributor in the marketplace that's coming out soon. So he's been all over the place. I'm incredibly proud of him, uh, uh, just seeing the humble beginnings and getting to know him over the years through the love of sports and playing basketball. Um, just really seeing what he's become um, has been fantastic to watch the growth. And uh, we're so excited that Chad was able to join us on the program today. Today's episode, Nick, is sponsored by Relief Factor, pain from everyday living, exercise or just getting older is one of the leading causes of trips to the doctor and sleepless nights. Nick, how you feeling, buddy? I mean, I, I can do, I could use some pain relief. I got that 15 month old on my arm constantly. I'm, you know, got my six year old running around for some reason. She likes to punch me a lot. I'm mm -hmm. raising a little warrior there. So yeah, I got pain shoulders. My shoulders on my back are where, are where it lives. So you got to tell me more about this, man. Well, look, the copy says here it interferes with daily activities and can keep us from spending time with the people we love. So you fed right into it, because if you have everyday pain, folks, it stands to reason you need something you can feel comfortable with taking every day. And that's why doctors invented 100 percent drug free relief factor. OK, now there's tens of thousands of customers that are using relief factor every day to become mostly or completely pain free. 
But 100% drug-free relief factor, let me tell you a little bit about it because it features four key ingredients that each work on a different metabolic pathway to support your body's natural healing process to respond to pain and inflammation. All right, Nick, get ready. Get ready for our 90s, uh, you know, little infomercial here because do this. you can try Relief Factor too, folks. The three-week quick start. It's a retail price of almost $70, Nick, $70. It's now available to our listeners for just $19.95. Stop it. I swear, $19.95 was slashing like $20, price. folks. <laughs> no promo code needed, folks. All you got to do is head to the link in our show notes to find out more. I want to do it again. 1995. No, no, I'm kidding. So listen, folks, no, in all seriousness, this is the retail price of almost $70 for this product. And it's available to the customers for 1995. That's insane. Head to the link in our show notes to find out more. And let's start your journey to better health and less pain today with Relief Factor. All right, Nick. So a while back, I was invited to play in this basketball game on 23rd Street here in New York City. Um, and in these weekly pickup games, I, I got to meet our next guest. Uh, we would guard each other and get to know each other on and off the court. And we discussed careers, sports, but unbeknownst to me, underneath all of this stood a creative genius. He's written op-ed pieces for the New York Times, for Slam Magazine. He's currently developing a series for Peacock. He's written on the hit series Grownish. Uh, and he has a fantastic book for those of you on YouTube that are looking over my shoulder it's called Black Magic, What Black Leaders Learn from Trauma and Triumph. And that is my buddy, Chad Sanders. Chad, Mike Leon, Nick Savary, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. Chad, man, um, I want to start off with a ridiculous question because uh, we introed it at the top before you came on. Um, Brene Brown, Morgan Freeman, Spike Lee. Um, you were on Angie Martinez's show, uh, Tamara Hall. Um, what's been the moment for you where it's been like, I, I got to pinch myself. I can't believe that this is happening to me. Oh, man. You know, I I don't know that I have had that moment specifically. You know, the funny thing is just to keep it real, like uh, media, entertainment, writing. It's such a business of failures. It's such a business of um you know, knocking on a door and being told no and, and 10 times. And then finally you get a yes after the 10th or the hundredth time. And I'm actually walking in here after just like being told I didn't get something that I've tried out for, you know, as a performer actually. And like, so I say that to say, because the roller coaster is so constant. Um, I don't know if I ever really for this project, for the book, like took the moment to just be like, you know, you did a good job this time. Um, so I will say what I what what makes me feel good is to talk to people who I actually know, like you, you know, who say I read this thing. It was meaningful. I think you know, I think you did a great job. You know what I mean? No, no Hollywood hyperbole, just like just just real. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's get into that, because we've had a bunch of writers on this program from Michael Eric Dyson to uh, New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman. And they've all come on and kind of shared a little bit of their creative journey, I like to call it. So tell our audience a little bit uh, that may have not seen some of these interviews on, on some of these other shows, a little bit about yourself and what got you into writing. Yeah. So what got me into writing, I'll, I'll kind of go backward and start with the second question first. Um, my sister, my older sister, you know, she taught me how to write when I was probably three years old. She was six and my house was full of books. The house I grew up in, you know, my parents' house. And my dad was a lawyer. 
my mom was a corporate executive. You know, in some ways we were an unusual black family in that way, I would say. And, you know, but my sister, I think part of it was just the exposure she had to books from our parents. But the other part of it is some of it I just think is genetic. She just had like an attachment to reading. And as such, as a little brother, I wanted to hang with my sister and I wanted to talk to my sister still to this day, it's this way. And so to get into her world, I had to go through books and then from books, you know, became storytelling and it became writing and it became journaling and it became just every opportunity I got, whether I was in class, whether I was at home, whether I was, you know, in between on the bus, in between sports games, whatever it was to this day, I'm always as I'm living, as I'm working, I'm writing a story. And sometimes I'm writing 10 different stories at once. It's in my notes pad on my iPhone. It's on the back of a sheet of paper that I'm using, you know, for an insurance card, whatever the case may be. Um, and, and then to answer the first question, you know, how, like, just how did I come up? I think that answers it to a degree. Uh, I was uh, a black kid who was in and out of different uh, gifted and talented programs growing up. And as such, that meant a lot of times I was in classes full of white kids and I was the only black one or there might be one other black one. And so I learned just early on, I learned how to speak several different languages within the English language. I'll put it that way. Um, I learned how to code switch. And at the time that was on that, that hurt, you know, that was painful. It's not fun to have to sort of feel like you need to change who you are every time you walk into a different room. Uh, today, when I walk from, a pitch meeting to a writer's room to a podcast interview, you know, it's very useful for me to be able to speak many different languages within the English language. Chad, your book speaks to speaks to that actually, because it gets into this conversation of self-discovering race consciousness, you know, and as someone who you know worked in Silicon Valley, and as you just spoke about code switching, what was that experience like when, because something I also took away from, from your book was the idea of, of recognizing whiteness being the norm in Silicon Valley, not just the presence of that, of that you know, race, but also how it plays a role culturally in the way organizations are designed and sort of what the cultural vibe is, you know, being in that space, what did that mean for you, you know, recognizing, recognizing code switching? What was the impact of that? Yeah, it was, uh, the honest answer is it was a full spectrum of feelings and emotions. Um, it's easy for me to speak solely to the discomfort of it. And I think that was a big part of it was feeling like I had to sh present the whitest version of myself, you know, and there's no white version of myself. I'm a black man, you know, but it, it was feeling like I had to present. And I don't just mean, you know, I don't just mean speaking uh, with the King's English or speaking with, you know, diction to the to the law of the letter or the letter of the law whichever it is I, I i mean something different than that i mean presenting a version of myself that is different than who i really am um talking about things that i don't care about and pretending to like them um trying to befriend people in upper management who don't look like me so that i can move up even though i don't feel an earnest connection to those people um, hanging out in bars and restaurants that I wouldn't naturally gravitate to because I wanted to have a better chance to be exposed to people that could give me a promotion. You know, those are the types of things I'm talking about when I say I was code switching or I was trying to change who I was. And it put me in some ways 
at a great disadvantage because I was always off balance. I was always, I was never playing a home game. I was always going to somebody else's gym and trying to fit in where they fit in naturally. And I could never win playing that game. I was never going to be, as I write in the book, I was never going to be able to be as white as the white people around me. Um, and, and, and when I realized that it probably took me about a year at that company, maybe two years to realize that, but, um, it hurt me, you know, because I thought that meant I wasn't going to be able to climb the ladder. And I thought that that meant I was going to end up being and feeling very alone in corporate America for a long time. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things that I took away personally from the book as, as a person who works in tech and a person of color and my, my father, who's black that is an engineer. Um, it was one of the things that I like, I, I took away from the book because you, you just uh, touch about it in the book that you were uh, interviewing with a recruiter at Google. And as soon as the, the recruiter came in, you felt the need to switch up to make him feel more comfortable. Um, you know, Nick just asked you about that, but I, I really want to get at the root of that because I think a lot of people don't understand that. Um, from the vantage point of the privilege side of it, right? Um, I take the example, I was just working previously in, in golf. And, you know, and we're on the anniversary as we're recording this of George Floyd's murder. And, you know, a lot of people within the company had feelings. And the first person they turned to was me. And I'm like, if you're turning to me, <laughs> like, I don't know, I like, I, you know, like, I'm a quarter, you know, like, <laughs> like, you can't turn to me. But also it speaks to what's in the room, like what's portraying in the room. So how hard is it? First off, let's let's get to the Google part of it. Mm-hmm. How hard was that situation when you're meeting with an interviewer, like tell our audience or even people that are on the come up that may be going through that. Like, how do they navigate something like that? The code switching or being true to themselves? Yeah, it's so tricky um, because you want to tell people you know, what feels best is to just be you in any environment, right? I mean, school, sports, music, art, politics, like whatever it is, we, we like to tell ourselves we gravitate to the most authentic version of people. But I don't think that always applies. I definitely don't think that applies in a corporate environment. While I do think there is something to be said about the person who always speaks their opinion, who asks the question that's sitting at the front you know, of their brain, who is willing to step out there. Yeah, sometimes we celebrate that person. Uh, but if you come from a culture that is too far removed from sort of the upper middle class white culture, you can be too much yourself and scare people away. You can be too much yourself and make people uncomfortable. You can be too much yourself and make people think this is not somebody I want to work with because I don't connect to that person. What I would say about interviewing at companies like Google and Silicon Valley companies in general, and now I'm seeing the same thing in media, is that it's particularly tricky because the culture is dressed down. So people say, bring your whole self to work. And they say, wear that t-shirt and those shorts that you like to wear. And for some people, they can take that as far out as saying, I'm going to wear my do-rag to work, or I'm going to show all my tattoos at work, or I'm going to talk about that thing that I usually only talk about at the barbershop because I know it's a little bit scary. It might be a little radical for white people to hear it. And when you flex that those muscles too strong or when you show those colors too brightly, you got to live with the risk reward of that. Now, in my case, I think the reward when I started being myself at work was one, People came to understand my point of view with more specificity, which helped me. And two, I ultimately realized that wasn't a place I wanted to work. You know, I I left Google after a few years because 
I didn't think I was going to fit. I didn't think I was going to make it to my goal, which was to, you know, rise to sort of the C-suite of a company like that. And I kept doubling down on being myself, being myself, being myself. And I ended up working for myself because that's where I fit. It's assuming that when we think about your book, and that more people of color working in Silicon Valley go through that experience, what ends up being the impact on these organizations? Because I think often about, I mean, we saw recently a documentary that talks about um, you know, like data mining and what these apps are, are doing, what this is potentially like the human and social cost of that. But when we think about, when we think about people of color in those situations, you know, what in your mind comes up as what is the, the loss of the potential impact on these companies, especially companies that are putting out, you know, t- pieces of technology that, that all consumers are, are sort of living in. Yeah, I think, so if we speak to the products themselves, I mean, we know that it's, it's well stated that black and brown people over index on tech products in general. Um, we are attached to our cell phones, to our smartphones, to our devices in a way that surpasses, you know, white people. And as such, I think it behooves the people that make the products themselves to be inclusive. And, and in fact, in some ways, be deferential to the people that are reaching those customers that over index on their products. But if we're talking to, if we're just talking about the well-being of a company, if we're just talking about the well-being of the people that work at a company, I personally think that it's always beneficial to any community of people to celebrate differences amongst their human resources, to celebrate differences amongst their constituents. So uh, as an example, in Silicon Valley, what I saw was this idea of bringing your whole self to work or just coming as you are without specific and concrete sort of parameters to police that. What it turned into was everybody just dressed like their boss and the boss's 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 boss was always wearing a turtleneck or a flannel and some khaki shorts. And so as such, everybody else tried to represent that exact same thing. And what you ended up with was just a different version of the dress code. That's just clothes. So like, if we take that same thing and apply it to every other way of being, everybody tried to think like their boss. So you all end up thinking like the same two dudes. Everybody wants to talk like their boss. So you all end up like talking like the same two dudes. I talk like them now still to this day. So you kind of get without, without being specific about how you're going to celebrate and even reward people for bringing individuality. I th- I found that without those rules in place, everybody just turned into the version of themselves that was the most similar to Larry and Sergey at Google or Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook or uh, I don't know, I guess who I now I'm blanking, but like tech CEO X at whatever company it, it may be, Elon Musk at Tesla, you know? You know, Chad, uh, let's get into the book for a second, because there's a bunch of different passages that I took away from the book that were uh, incredible. You can get you can check out Chad's book wherever books are sold. Um, and obviously, you've done so many interviews in the book. Elaine Welteroth, who's a co-host on the talk. Uh, you have Quincy Avery, the quarterback coach for, for Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson, um, and asking them each about their experiences growing up. Um, what were some of your takeaways from the people that you interviewed in the book? Because it, there, there's so much synergy with a lot of the different stories. Did it feel like a sense of, oh, you know, we, I went through this too. I went through this too. Is that the main takeaway that you want people to take away from this book? You know, I did find that there was overlap for sure. I found that uh, people talk about breathing a lot. They take like literally their breath and they talked about 
um, how they could breathe differently, like breathe more fully when they were in spaces that had other people that looked like them. So uh, for me, that applies to, as an example, I spoke to a lot of people that went to HBCUs. They talk about what it was like going to school wherever they grew up, you know, in more mixed classrooms or in classrooms that had predominantly white student bodies and going to HBCUs and feeling for the historically black colleges and universities, feeling for the first time, like they could expand themselves physically. Like I'm not even speaking to who they are emotionally and, and, and mentally, but it, it, it translates. Um, I think something else, you know, that came up time and time again was this feeling of just like loneliness. You know, I think the higher and higher you escalate in a lot of industries, the more you find yourself alone just isolated in your head, in your thoughts, walking into a room, looking around and having to do all these calculations about who you're going to be in that moment and how you're going to be in that moment. And that isolation is painful. Um, but there are strengths that are born from that isolation. You know, you, you learn how to, um, you, you learn how to see, you, you learn vision, you learn how to read a room, you learn how to see who's the boss here. Uh, what's the culture here? How are decisions being made? And how do I, how do I put myself in, into this system in a way that benefits me? But I would say, Mike, just to answer the flip side of, the, of that, I interviewed probably 200 people for this book, maybe a little more, maybe a few more. There's 25, 15 interviews in the book and then my own story. And what I was struck by was how differently some people saw the world with regards to race. I was struck by um, the conflict of points of view that I saw in these stories. You know, you have one person saying uh, it's incredibly damaging to be at a company and it's going to cause you cost you years of therapy to recover from being alone all the time in a company that is predominantly white or, or a, a culture or a college. And then on the other side, you have a partner at McKinsey saying, while it does suck to be the only black dude there or the only black person there, there are advantages you can find in that sort of being that identifiable within a company space. So, you know, the tricky part of writing this book was trying to pull out the, the 10 or 12 or 15 skills that I think come out of black experiences based on those interviews. And that's what I tried to do. And, and you'll find those in the book. I want to follow up because um, you have a passage in the book that I thought was fantastic and it speaks to, how some people don't understand uh, different communities. Um, so I want to give context here because we had Reggie Love on the program and Reggie spoke about something similar when Obama was about to be the candidate and he was meeting with a black caucus and he's hearing different opinions and it's like, he's not black enough for us. He's not this and that. And you and your friends had a conversation and you write about it in the book. And it made me think like, why are we tearing each other down? If the goal is to get there, why are we tearing each other down before we get there? You know, it, that's an interesting one. Um, and I'm, I might take a sort of an alternative route into that question. So when I went to Morehouse, um, we had conflict every day. We had conflict every hour of every day, right? We questioned each other. Um, we poked at each other. We, we, we tested each other. Uh, we question, I think we said questioned already, but there's, there is a natural and inherent conflict. I think just in like intellectual jousting, I think that is a part of the human experience is to, you know, 
is to wonder about each other and to question and to sometimes be skeptical, you know, and there, excuse me, excuse me, in our sort of uh, incubated safe space, there was no problem with that. I think in a lot of ways, it made us all stronger. It made us all smarter about the way that we looked at the world. It made us all, um, it made us all more thoughtful about how we presented a theory when we, when we were outspoken about something. And the same for our, our sister schools, Spelman and, and Clark Atlanta right next to us. And sometimes when I, I uh, there's no doubt in my mind that as black people, as Latin, Latin people, you know, as people of color, as minorities, you know, I think it is important for us to support each other, support each other's businesses, support each other's points of view, support each other's lifestyles, ideas, whatever the case may be. But I also think there's a place for that sort of intellectual jousting and questioning. And if that's removed, that's like a part of our human experience removed. And the example I want to give is this. So uh, recently, and this, it, it went too far left, I would say, but recently there were some former basketball players that, you know, started jabbing at each other over the internet. Right. And two yeah, of them know. host. Yeah. We're not we, saying, we're not saying one of them's name. We, we don't want that smoke. No, no, no. We're not, I'm not saying any of their names just to keep it, just to keep it super safe. But if you're both referring to the one known as Mwambe crown, <laughs> he's a very impressive yeah. yep. power forward. Just putting it out. There. That's right. He he's is. one of the greatest power forwards in history. Correct. He should be a exactly. hall of famer in my point, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Um, no, but I actually do want to speak sort of to, you know, some people took some shots at him on the airwaves, on their airwaves, and he defended himself and he went too far, I, I would say. But in the beginning, he defended himself and his legacy and his career. And I think he has that right. And I think those other two black men have their right to poke at him. I mean, it's a sports show. Like, that's what they do. They're selling they're selling clicks. They're selling advertisements, you know, like they have a business to run. They're a media company. And if we take away their sort of uh, agency to be able to do the same thing Skip Bayless does, Bill Simmons does, Dan Levitard does, then we're damaging their business. You know, I think uh, I don't I don't like the way we are overexamined sometimes in how we interact with each other. It's it's the same thing that comes up in sort of like, oh, but what about, you know, black on black crime? It's like, well, we'll deal with that in house. You know what I mean? But there's there's larger issues here. We see it. We see a play with with like black intellectuals too, right? Like you know, Doctor Dyson says something, then someone quickly grabs over John McCord, yep. right? It's like, what are you saying? And like, why are we why are we pitting one against another? Right. But um, you know, and think, can I just say yeah, one no, more please, thing yeah. to that, which yeah, is yeah. like the best, you know, just let's say is just as an example, as I have been having conversations around this book, I think the most revelatory and the most interesting conversations I have are the ones where I run into a point of view that I disagree with, because then we mm. can get that, we can get to that friction and we can make fire. You know, we can find something that's interesting that one of us hasn't thought of. And, you know, like when I go, if I ever get a chance to go, you know, sit on a talk show or something with Michael Eric Dyson or whoever the case may be, like, I don't want to have to agree to everything that person says. I want to be able to, let's get into it. Like, let's see what we got here. That's how I feel. You don't have to name names, but like, what's a what's an example of sort of a, a, uh, some friction that came out, like some differing views that in your conversations that people have had about the book or like just some of the things that came up in the book? Yeah. You know what? One of my best friends um, who I, I will leave his name out of it, but he 
he's interviewed in the book and we've had before i even wrote the book we had this conversation we've since had it again after the book came out but we i've we've had the conversation around what do you think is our destiny what is our fate as black people and you know as a, as a con in congregate and his point of view is blackness was created like the idea of race was only created so that there would be an underclass as long as we are black like we're screwed that's his point of view he's like maybe a few of us can live well maybe some of us can amass wealth and do it and, and have good lives or whatever and and feel pretty good um but in mass he thinks we're donezo like he thinks we're destitute and i disagree i mean it's some of it is um again i think it's like genetic i think uh optimism is partially philosophical and partially genetic and i'm an optimist and part of it is just probably like bullheaded pride you know what i mean like it's just i can't i can't believe that a team that i'm a part of is supposed to just take l's for the rest of eternity you know that's not how i see the world and so that's one you know where if you read the book you'll find that in the last chapter i think it it sort of dives into some dark places, but to make a point that we can come out of dark places, even though they've been thrown on us. And I know there are huge swaths of, of black folks. I would say probably Ta-Nehisi Coates among them who think uh, there's not a sweet end to this story. And I just, I, I read this story differently. Yeah, no, that's very well said because it's a, it's a perfect transition. Um, Interest of full disclosure, Nick and I started this podcast and we conceptualized it in the summer after George Floyd's death. And I said, I want to kind of build this similar to shows that I've produced that are still out there because I find that people don't understand the most basic of concepts. And I, I give that background and context because you wrote a fantastic op-ed piece on the New York Times after the, the George Floyd murder. And you talked about how you don't need your white friends to text you support. And, and I, I recommend people to go check out that piece online. But why do you think it is so hard for people to understand the concept of Black Lives Matter? Not, so, not necessarily the, the company, the movement. I know it's a silly question on its surface. No, it's a but, great question. But I have had a few people, either during the podcast or during the context of things being explained to them, have an aha moment that we're white that say, I get it now. I do get it now. And I, I couldn't understand why they just got it now. So why do you think, as somebody, I turn to you because you wrote this fantastic piece, like I mentioned for the New York Times, why do you think it's such a hard concept for people to understand? Because it's counter-programming. I mean, the idea of Black Lives Mattering is counter-programming. Uh, this whole thing is built on the idea that Black lives are expendable that black lives are uh, tactical, that they are a resource, that they are, you know, something that you can use to build a country, um, wash your toilet, um, do something weird or gross or terrible or perverted to uh, use for cool points, use um, to watch dancing or play basketball or throw a football or rap. Um, but those things are not the same as mattering. Those are all ideas and concepts that are meant for the for someone else's purposes, right? 
for some more important, actually mattering human being to put to their own service. And so, and that's 400 years. I mean, I, I, I'm almost tired of hearing the term like 400 years of blah, 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 but like, it's true. That's 400 years of programming versus what are we looking at now? Maybe we could call it since the civil rights movie movement, 60 years of counter-programming, but in earnest, the counter-programming has barely even yet begun if it has begun. And so I think when somebody has a hard time wrapping their head around the idea, like they're, it's not even being trite. This is real. They're like, wait, like that woman who I drive past at the bus station when I go pick up my kids from school, who is struggling, who has black skin, who probably travels here an hour and a half from Flushing to Park Slope or whatever the case may be, like that woman who I don't even notice as I'm driving past her every day, like she matters. I don't get it. I I mean, it's counter programming. That's why it's why that's why it's hard for people to wrap their brain around it. You know, before Nick jumps in there, I had a friend of mine one time, a black, a black friend of mine. We're in Miami Beach and there was a homeless black guy there doing something. He made an off the cuff joke and he goes, come on, man. Now I got to go 10 times harder. And it always stuck with me because, wow, it's a funny joke. It's true. Like now he is perceived within that group, similar to that person that's doing that action, because we all get labeled as something when only one of us does something. So even the 90% could do something, but that 10%, then all of a sudden we get labeled with that brush. So I always thought that that was fascinating. Um, but it's no, all actually, but, but Mike, but, yeah, it's, please. But it's only, you know, like I wrote a book. Does every black person now get labeled as an author? Uh, when LeBron James starts a business, does every black person get labeled as a successful entrepreneur? You know what I mean? When Barack Obama's the president, like it, it's only when someone does something shitty that we all share that same paintbrush. But why does it work in the opposite regard for other people? Why does a white guy walk into a job interview and get to benefit from the credibility of Steve Jobs instead of the detriment or the 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 stain of I don't know that same person that struggled or did something terrible on the opposite end of the spectrum. Like, why does this shit work like that? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think yeah. people don't. Hold on, before you go, Nick. I think mm -hmm. people don't understand it. You know, um, my father, we came to this country, changed his last name because he found he wasn't getting callbacks with De Leon. You know, mm -hmm. and but Leon is getting him a Carlos. Leon is, you know, right on that fringe of getting him callbacks for interviews. Now, again, that's informal research, but there is data around that callbacks for interviews. Um, so you're right. Yeah, that makes me think it's yeah. I mean, that point about your last name, um, like there's that great story about Martin Sheen. Yeah, he told on behind the actor studio, like his last yeah. name is Estevez. Like it's Emilio's last name. Right. But change just to get an apartment in the city. Mm -hmm. Um we're talking about this experience also as as three three Amer you know three people who live in America as you know of, you know people of color living in America. Chad, you talked about living in London and just that mm -hmm. different experience, um, and that connects a little bit uh, very much so to the way James Baldwin talks about you know living in Paris as opposed to as a black person living in Paris as opposed to being a black person living in America. What came up for you like when you were when you were living living across the pond as they like to say. Um, yeah. 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 I lived in London and I lived in uh, Berlin also, which I did not write about in the book. But um, what came up for me was the sort of weightless joy of 
just being lost in the world um, of, you know, it's, I'm not a, I'm not a fool, right? I know that there's racism in every country that has race basically, right? Like there's every, in every country that there's a class system based on the way that you look, there's race. So I knew there was racism in London. Um, but I will say it was freeing to not be so well acquainted to it, to not know it so well, to not, you know, it's, it's such an unusual and cool thing to interact with white people in another country and not, even though I'm sure that they were, there, there was some level of um, stereotyping going on for me, I didn't know what it was. So I couldn't lean my identity or my spirit in any direction to try to move away from it or toward it, which is really freeing. It's like when you don't know which direction the defense is coming from, you just play ball, right? Like you just do what you do. So that's how I felt there. I wasn't trying to lean into or away from any particular stereotype. And it made me feel it was restorative. Like it made me feel healthy. It made me feel, um, I keep using the word, but honestly, just free, uh, anonymous. Um, I, I didn't feel like I needed to be a representative of counter programming, of counter stereotyping. I didn't feel like I needed to like, oh man, I got to do this so that you know, the next black kid will get the job or I got to do this so that they know black people can do X, Y, and Z. Like I had no idea what they thought of black people. And so I got to just live. And as I ran into, you know, immigrants from other countries, from other European countries, from some African countries, some Caribbean countries, all, you know, like all people from all over the world, I just start, I just felt like a person in the world. I felt less and less American, less and less african-american in some ways you know and and just more and more just like i'm just out here and i think i i i encourage any black person that can find the resources to have that experience because when i came back it was so much more clear and obvious to see the bullshit like it was so much more clear to see when somebody was pushing me in a direction that I didn't want to go or that I didn't belong. Chad, you say something in the book that uh, to each of the interviewees that you have uh, is what would be something that they would want to impart on people that flip to this page. So somebody has purchased Chad Sanders's book. What is something that you want to impart to them about the book? Yeah, I, I want every black person that reads the book to know that they have superpowers, uh, worldly superpowers um, that are that they're only theirs to use. You know, they don't belong to anybody else but them. And you might have to sort of reach into a scary closet, which is trauma and dust that thing off to use it. Um, but if you can stomach that, it's yours and you don't owe it to anybody else. Like it's yours. Do do what do with it what you want, because you earned it. Um, and for anybody else who reads the book, I, I want them to know that shit too. I want them to look around at the black people in their lives and realize not only what they're capable of, but what they had to endure to earn that and invest in them, partner with them, promote them, follow them, 
learn from them, appreciate them, you know, see them like under take the time to see them and understand them. You don't have to say anything like you don't have to say anything. It can be an internal process of getting to know and recognizing what the who those people are as fully shaped human beings. Um, that that's what I would want from people that read this book. Well said, my friend. Uh, we're going to move over to the Patreon portion of this where Chad's going to tell us what it's like to be friends with Morgan Freeman, Spike Lee, Brene Brown, Angie Martinez. You got all these people on his phone. Uh, I got none of these numbers. So we appreciate you coming on the program today, Chad. All the best. Go pick up Chad Sanders' book, Black Magic, What Black Leaders Learn from Trauma and Triumph. Uh, Chad, we appreciate the time you've given us today, my friend. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you. Quick word from today's sponsor, Nick, of the pod, and that is Fulton. Uh, they're a modern brand of arch support. Nick, you're going to tell me all about insoles and support. So hit me with it. What do I need to know about I'm, insoles and support? First and foremost, man, your feet are important. You know, you are standing on your feet all day. Even if you're walking around the house, as we all do, working from home, yeah. I'm always in the pursuit of comfortable shoes or at the very least insoles to help my feet out. Arch yeah. support is important. You know, I've had plantar fasciitis in the past. So anything I can do to get my feet to feel comfortable, I'm all in. So what? I mean, you, you tell me about an insult. I'm already listening. I'm already getting ready to put the promo code in. So do your magic, Mike. You got to tell me more about this. Well, I mean, first off, I didn't know you were training for the NFL draft where you there got plantar is. fasciitis over there. What's wow. going on over there? Wow, man. Yeah, I mean, you're the one hurting with the foot stuff. Well, listen, folks. <laughs> Fulton has launched the most comfortable, supportive, and sustainable insole on the planet. Okay, I believe him, even though the copy tells me it, but I still believe him because Fulton believes wellness starts from the ground up and that the feet are the foundation of our bodies. Nick just mentioned it. It is true. You know, I, it's funny that you said that because I like to stand. I have a standing desk. I love standing at the countertop. My wife knows this all the time. She's like, why don't you sit down? And it's it's true. Your feet are relations of your body. Fulton installs. They offer, they offer comfortable arch support to align your body from head to toe, mitigating pain, providing comfort, and improving posture. Nick, this is this is great for you. I think this is right up your alley, this Fulton stuff. You, you got to check Absolutely. this stuff out. So Fulton, Fulton is creating a world where the shoes we wear are actually good for our bodies, providing you with a sturdier foundation for a healthier foot. Oh, my God. For a healthier future. We're going to keep that in there, though, folks. Future feet. F word. You got this. Yeah, seriously, there's way too much alliteration going on here. So Fulton is offering our listeners $10 off your next purchase. All you got to do is go to walkfulton.com, walkfulton.com. You hit the promo code podcast10, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, 10. For those of you that can't spell, I mean, come on, you got to know that podcast 10. It's not that hard. You get $10 off at walk, walkfulton.com. If I could get it out properly, check out the website and see how Fulton can support you. Nick, you heading over there right now? I'm right now about to save myself a Hamilton, baby. Let's go. There we go. All right. That was Chad Sanders. Like I mentioned, go check out his book, Black Magic, What Black Leaders Learn from Trauma and Triumph. You can check out all of, I, I, want, I specifically want people to check out that op-ed piece that Chad wrote in the New York Times. I, I thought it was so powerful, so moving. Um, all the series that are going to be coming out soon that he's working on that we may have touched on the Peacock series. Um, you know, obviously he's written for, for Grownish. He's, he's working with Issa Rae on, on a project for HBO Max. So, um, super proud of Chad, man. I like, you can hear it in my voice a little bit. You can see it in my face for those of you watching on video. Like I, I I'm so proud of him because you, know, you see somebody 
uh, that you've gotten to know, you know, over time. And and it's really like two, three hours at a time. We're hanging out, we're playing basketball, um, getting to talk, you know, on and off the court about different things that are going on in our lives. And then all of a sudden you just see this meteoric rise and just some of the names that he touts as friends or has business relationships with from Spike Lee to Morgan Freeman, you know, Dak Shepard. And it's just like, wow, I'm incredibly proud of him uh, and incredibly proud not only of, of his story and that he was able to articulate it so well in this book and tell stories of others in this book. Nick, what'd you make of, of Chad? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the book's extraordinary. And I think the way he describes the lessons from the book, how the book was written, um, but also the journey to to write a book. Like there's things about that process that I think other authors we've had on the show haven't talked about. And Chad really lays it out for us. Um, but the message of the book is a, is, a, is a powerful one and it's an important one, especially in the, the time that we live in now. Um, it was just just a powerful conversation and a really enlightening one about just his experiences and just what came up in all the interviews that he did from just the stories that people told um, about about their respective superpowers. Yeah, no, that's it's very well said. Uh, head over to our Patreon portion because we had a lot more to talk with Chad about um, specific things, roles that he just recently, <laughs> as he was doing the interview with us, found out that he wasn't getting um, other projects that he, he has coming to light um, and some other stories that you know, we're from the book that maybe got left out on the cutting room floor. So if you go to our show notes on the audio platforms or even on YouTube, click on the Patreon link that's there and subscribe to our Patreon portion and, and get all that exclusive bonus content. If you want to email us, can we please talk podcast at yahoo.com? Continue the conversation. If there's something you heard from the interview today that you want to just, you know, get off your chest, you want to ask us a question, email us there. Uh, follow us on social, IG, TikTok, at Can We Please Talk Podcast, on Twitter, at Can We Please Talk. We appreciate you guys so much uh, for listening, watching. As always, I'm Mike Leon. I'm Nick Saveri. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a good one. flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.